Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Monday, December 5th. Have you heard yet about President Biden's proposal to overhaul the presidential primary calendar for 2024? Goodbye, Iowa and New Hampshire as the first states to go. Hello, South Carolina and Michigan. Fordham University political science professor Christina Greer is our guest. Christina, why were Iowa and New Hampshire first in the first place? What's the history there? Oh, I can't really remember the exact history of of why those two were chosen. I should know this, Brian, but it's somewhere deep in the crates of my brain. Um, but, you know, don't forget, I was a caucus and New Hampshire is a primary. Those are two very different things. And so a caucus is, you know, uh, people don't sort of cast a ballot. It's it's more of a persuasion. It's an older tactic. Uh, it's been great to elevate people like, you know, Bernie Sanders, Pete Buttigieg, Barack Obama, Jimmy Carter, you know, folks who weren't necessarily considered you know, contenders, and then they, you know, go to Iowa. And, and if you have a great ground game and a solid team, uh, they can kind of catapult you into the conversation when it comes to New Hampshire, where it's the, the very first primary. Some of the critiques, obviously, Brian, have been those two states aren't really reflective of the great diversity that we have in this nation. And so why is it that those two states really get to sort of set the pace as to who's in the real conversation to become a presidential contender? So South Carolina is not a swing state, but it is a majority black Democratic primary electorate state. Here is South Carolina Congressman Jim Clyburn on All Things Considered yesterday. Remember his endorsement of Biden in 2020 in that primary did so much to help Biden win that primary and propel him to the nominations. So here's Jim Clyburn on reasons why he argues South Carolina is representative of America. If the PD of our area is agriculture, you go to the Piedmont area, uh, is manufacturing, uh, you go to the Midlands, is the educational institutions, the low country, uh, tourism, and then you look at what we like to call the defense industry. It is what this country is all about. Congressman Jim Clyburn on All Things Considered yesterday. So, Christina, I guess his argument is really there are so many different kinds of people in so many different kinds of jobs and living situations and geographical contexts in South Carolina that if you can win there, it's a good bellwether for who would be electable in the general. I'm curious if you have an opinion about whether that's true. (laughs) I mean, obviously, you know, Jim Clyburn is a great uh, advocate for his state. So, yes, he would say that. I think we're just being a little more, you know, let's put our cards on the table. African-Americans are disproportionately uh, Democratic. And, you know, this is a state with a very significant African-American population. So if you are a a Democrat, one would think that you would want to do well or need to do well in South Carolina, possibly as as a bellwether to how you will do with African-Americans across the state. Don't forget, Bernie Sanders couldn't trouble himself to go down to South Carolina to meet with James Clyburn and go to his famous fish fry, uh, where all candidates, you know, go and shake hands with all the different types of electeds in the state of of South Carolina, Democratic electeds. Uh, And so Joe Biden understood that. He understood also the power of the African-American vote 
uh, in the primary. And so we see that South Carolina obviously delivered and delivered very large for for Joe Biden. I, I wrote a piece in the Washington Post at the beginning of the year, Brian, making the argument why I thought Georgia actually should be the first primary state, uh, uh, just because it is trending towards purple. And so instead of it, um, you know, it to me, it looks more like a swing state. Uh, and it has a diverse, not just African-American population, but it has a growing uh, Latino and also Asian-American population. Uh, it has a growing immigrant population. Uh, it has mixed class. Um, it is definitely a Southern state, but it, it I thought that it was a little more indicative of, of certain ways that uh, Democrats could sort of see how they look across the country. Yeah. And since you're watching Georgia, I'll ask you a Walker Warnock question or two before we run out of time. But I think maybe the part of the story that's getting lost in, you know, the short headline version coverage is that it's not just about South Carolina going first. It's that they would front load other states that are swing states also near the top of the primary calendar and particularly Georgia and Nevada and Michigan. And so I, I, I guess my question for you as a political scientist is, does it matter who wins the earliest states? That seems to be the goal here, or maybe you need to help us clarify the goal. That seems to be the goal to make sure that the candidates who are the Democratic nominees who get the biggest head start in the primaries and therefore are the likeliest to be the nominee um, have tested themselves in the places where the general election is going to be decided. Right. I think, Brian, you know, I've been tussling with this question for quite some time because I do think that front-loading more swing states like Michigan and Georgia, Nevada and Arizona, especially with their growing Latino populations, and and we know Latino voters are are sort of uh, flirting with the Republican Party at greater rates, much greater rates than African-Americans have. I do think, though, that it's worth entertaining, largely because the homogeneity of Iowa and New Hampshire are so glaring. Um, And we also know primary voters are a different type of voter. So they're not the general election voters. But I do think that that information for the Democratic Party would be a little more substantive than the information that a state like Iowa or New Hampshire gives the party when it comes to choosing a potential nominee. And you mentioned Iowa giving a shot to people like Jimmy Carter and Barack Obama to establish themselves in the public eye. But we've also seen so many examples, including in 2020, where the winner of Iowa and New Hampshire, and in 2020, Biden placed fourth and fifth Mm -hmm. in those two. And Bernie Sanders was in the lead when they went to state number three, South Carolina, um, where it doesn't wind up that way that the the Iowa, New Hampshire winners go on to be the nominee. That's right. And I think also, you know, because in in some ways, Iowa feels like a straw poll, depending on, you know, a candidate every now and again. But you know, I, I also think that Iowa, because it's a caucus and the the way that we measure success is is not traditional. Um, I think that that can sort of, especially with the, the, the last sort of two cycles, I believe it was, you know, a lot of folks felt like, well, the, the counting is off, you know, so the democratic process feels weakened because there's there's less faith in how we actually assessed these results from Iowa. And so the kind of the idea of a caucus writ large uh, makes some people feel unsettled and and not really clear as to whether or not they can trust the results. And James in Wilton, Connecticut, you're on WNYC. Hi, James. 
Hi, Brian. How are you doing? Good. Uh, um, so I, I'm a voter in Connecticut, or now I'm actually in Massachusetts. Um, I'm from Connecticut. I'm in Connecticut right now. Connecticut is like, I don't know, way down on the list of the order that states vote in. It's probably, I think they vote in June. And so what I was, was frustrated about was like, by the time it gets to Connecticut, like the presidential primaries kind of already decided like, yeah, we can vote, but like, it's, you know, people drop out by then. There's the Super Tuesday, which is in March. What I never understood is why can't we all just vote on the same day? Like every state, just there's like a primary day, say March 15th, I don't know, whenever. And everyone mm-hmm. just votes on the same day. It just feels like that would be like way more fair. I, I just, it's like so frustrating. Yeah. I don't know when Massachusetts votes. I haven't registered yet. I just moved there. But like, I don't know. It's every year is very frustrating. Like I wanted someone, the last presidential like, race, I think I wanted Elizabeth Warren and she dropped out in Super Tuesday. It's like, well, where's my voice in this? Like by the time. Yeah, it, like, no, I that's said, a really interesting question with, a, yeah, with, with yeah. another, another alternative model. Why not? Have you given this some thought, Christina, as a political scientist, why not have one massive national primary day and everybody in all the states will get equal weight? Yeah, I, I think that, that that's a, a fantastic question. I mean, I think these are all old vestiges of, you know, negotiations when we sort of really grapple with, you know, federalism, anti-federalism. But I, I, I definitely hear the last caller, I mean, in the sense that, you know, we can look at probably the rates of participation from some of these latter states, um, and they don't have the same selection that earlier states have. They don't actually have the same motivation either. I mean, this is also, you know, why don't we have <laughs> election day as a holiday? I mean, there's so many ways that we make it hard for our um, constituencies to actually participate equally in our democratic process, small d democratic process. It's very frustrating for some, especially for me as an educator who's trying to get young people involved in politics in every single aspect, not just running for politics, not running for office, but, you know, participating in various ways. Um, if someone from is from Connecticut and they would say, well, well, why do I even need to participate? Because my candidate's not even in the race. And, you know, by then, you know, the candidate is oftentimes pretty much chosen, uh, you know, unless we're thinking about 2008 with Obama and, and Clinton. But I think, Brian, you know, the overhaul of our electoral system is obviously a conversation that needs to be had. We have to also recognize, though, that the deep incumbency advantage on both sides of the aisle uh, is so entrenched in our democratic process that there's not an incentive for a lot of elected officials to want to change a lot of our systems. They know who votes for them. They know who turns out in a primary. They know who their base is. And that's what helps them get reelected every two or four years. So there really isn't a strong incentive. This goes for Republicans and Democrats to Mm -hmm. actually change the system. If If it benefits them, why would you want to open it up to, say, young voters or new voters because you don't know who those people are and they may not be voters for you. And so I think that's the the dark underbelly of our democratic process that I really struggle with as a political scientist. Kira in Brooklyn, originally from New Hampshire. You're on WNYC. Hi, Kira. Hi. Um, yeah, so I am originally from New Hampshire and grew up with the whole, you know, first in the nation kind of uh, rah-rah sort of stuff. I actually... I think this is a great idea. Um, New Hampshire is a small state. It is pretty homogenous still. I think it's time to change the guard. Have you been speaking to people um, from back home? Because I understand they're you ready know, to go to political war over this. Yeah. 
I was not, and I mostly it's because I don't think I want to make uh, enemies where I'm from. <laughs> but I, I think it's time for New Hampshire to realize that there are other things at stake than just being the first. I know it's tradition, but there are things that are changing that have been changing in the nation, and I think that New Hampshire needs to recognize that it's time to let go. Kira, thank you very much. Uh, let's go on to one or two other things. Christina, an explosion of early voting in Georgia. It's being described by some media as an explosion of early voting ahead of tomorrow's actual election day in that Warnock versus Walker Senate race. Um, Georgia being the state that people boycotted not that long ago for having supposedly restrictive new voting laws. How do you see the numbers? Uh, well, I, I think I, I'm excited that so many Georgians care about uh, who their next senator will be. I'm definitely frustrated that Senator Warnock has to actually compete against someone who's so wholly uh, not qualified in in Herschel Walker. Uh, and it, I think it says a lot about who Republicans uh, think African-Americans are, uh, but also how they view the Senate uh, to even choose him as a as a possible uh, candidate to represent the state of Georgia. Uh, I'm hoping that so many Georgians recognize that even though Democrats have a slim margin, they still need to show up uh, and make sure that Senator Warnock goes back to Washington, D.C. after this election just to make sure we can somewhat neutralize the mansions and the cinemas uh, of the party and actually get something uh, done, uh, no matter how slim or difficult it may be in, in these in these uh, these next two years. I know it'll be very difficult, obviously, with the House uh, being Republican and uh, Republican members of the House already saying that, you know, legislation is not on their docket. Hunter Biden's laptop is their main priority and impeachment of the president is their main priority. Um, I really do think that Georgia is is crucial. Yeah. And I think we should be inspired by the number of people who are actually uh, lining up to hopefully uh, return Senator Warnock to the Senate. Well, I want to ask you what you think about the way that these early voting um, demographics are being reported because it kind of makes it less like a secret ballot that we find out who everybody was who voted demographically and how they voted only at the end of the process because what I'm seeing in news reports is they're saying how many early votes have come in and from what geographic areas. I've seen the stat a million people age 55 and over, had voted as of the other day. I saw the stat 200,000 more women than men, um, which, you know, given the usual gender gap, gives you an indication probably of who's leading. And then it becomes more of a rolling contest than an entirely secret balloting process until it's over. I'm thinking of it like a football or a soccer game. You get to halftime and the coach has to assess if you're winning or losing, which you can kind of tell by these demographics, I think, and try to adjust with a last-minute strategy. You know, I'm imagining some kind of new negative smear that might even be a lie that the public doesn't even have time to vet and digest. Um, mm -hmm. But that's just a worst-case scenario. Maybe this is a good thing. What, what do you think about all this information being revealed as they go along? Yeah, you know, Brian, I've been sitting with this one, and I, I haven't come to a conclusion just yet about this kind of real-time information. Because don't forget, you know, the gender gap does and does not exist in the sense that African-American women are so disproportionately Democratic. It makes it seem as though there's a gender gap. But actually, white women are Republicans, especially in the state of Georgia. And so it depends on 
which district we're talking about where we have this overabundance of women voting because white women in Georgia uh, voted for the Republican uh, candidate uh, in greater percentages right. than they did right. for the Democratic although, candidate. Although I think white women voted for Trump nationally in 2016, but voted for Biden nationally in 2020. Um, or maybe that was just white college-educated women. Just um, just the college-educated women. College-educated. But something right. had switched that didn't switch for the men in the same category. Right. White men are, are calcified as, as Republicans in the same way black women are, <laughs> by and large, calcified as, as Democrats. I think, you know, this real-time information, though, Brian, can do one of two things. It could motivate people to say, okay, great, my candidate is winning, so let me go and, and be a part of it. Uh, it could, in some ways, suppress it in the sense that if you get this real-time data and tomorrow you've got child care or parent care or, you know, you've got to work or there's traffic or there's, God forbid, rain, uh, you could say, well, my candidate's already up, you know, depending on, you know, if these if this data is correct. So, like, I'm sure my vote isn't going to really count. So I can kind of, you know, stay home. So part of me can get frustrated a little bit with real-time data because it can sway people's behavior on actual election day. Uh, what you said about negative ads, Brian, is is so astute. I talk to my students about it all the time. Mm. Uh, you know, everyone says they hate negative ads, but we use negative ads. Why? Because they work. Uh, and especially negative ads that come out on a day, say like today, where it would be too late for someone to respond to said negative ad. And the brilliance of negative ads is they always have an element of truth. Oftentimes negative ads aren't just pure whoppers, they have a slight element of truth to them. So you have to sort of dissect what is being interpreted or interpolated uh, mm. in said ad. So hopefully the Walker campaign uh, isn't that organized or, or coordinated. We shall see um, to go against Senator Warnock. Uh, just I, I can't state enough just how frustrated I am so, that Senator Warnock has to even deal with this, this type of candidate. But I do think that real-time data um, has a lot of pros and cons. And I think that we'll probably be studying this race for the next few years to see not just the use of ads, the use of, of race and gender uh, in a Southern state, uh, but also how we have used this data um, to either increase turnout or suppress turnout. Speaking of organized disinformation campaigns, last question. Um, have you been grappling personally with whether to get off Twitter. We've seen the numbers of a million or millions of people uh, leaving the platform because of Elon Musk and what he's doing. On the other hand, I don't know if you heard Kai Wright's show last night, Notes from America, but he had a great long conversation with a black journalist, uh, actually two black journalists, who have decided for the moment they're staying on Twitter uh, because there's more opportunity to create community, more opportunity to be heard by powers that be, then there is a downside for them, at least at the moment, uh, in, in abandoning the site because of its problems, its racism, its disinformation. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I'm no fan of Elon Musk. I've been very clear about that. Um, but I, I, you know, I, maybe I'll just be the person rearranging the deck chairs as the Titanic sinks, but I don't plan on leaving. Uh, I've definitely found a political community on Twitter. I've definitely found a lot of political friendships, uh, personal friendships. I'm a birder, so my birding community is partially on Twitter. I'm not uh, really on any other social media platform. Every now and again, I'm on Instagram, but that's basically just birds and cats. So this is my political outlet, and I've, I've met some really 
wonderful, intellectually brilliant people through this site. It definitely feels as though, you know, there are a lot of folks who have left, um, but I don't plan on leaving. I think, you know, I'll probably log on one day and it'll just say, you know, that 404 error and we'll realize that it's come to a close. I also haven't signed up for any new uh, sites just yet. I need to do a little more research as to the difference between like Mastodon and Post and all these other sites. I'm, I'm, I, I lean towards not liking to be on social media, you know? Uh, I know boredom and, yeah. you know, my editors like me to be on social media so yeah. people actually know what I'm writing and what I'm doing. But uh, because Black women specifically are disproportionately targeted on social media, it has also been a very difficult place uh, to be uh, every now and again. I use my block button and my mute button uh, liberally and and expeditiously, I should say. Well, maybe in six months, we'll see if there's a birding Mastodon community <laughs> to rival the birding Twitter community. If you can't have a birding community on a site called Twitter, where can you have one? Where can but, you have it? But we leave it there with Fordham University political science professor Christina Greer. Uh, she also hosts the podcast FAQ NYC, which is a New York City politics podcast. And wait, I have the other one here. The one from the Grio. Is it called The Blackest Questions? That's right. It's a game show <laughs> where I have people on and I ask some questions about black history because black history is American history. Game show host, political podcaster, political science professor, birder, Christina Grio. Thank you so much as always. Thanks so much, Brian. Happy Monday. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.